Section 13 of David and His Friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by A. J. Van Zant. David and His Friends. A Series of Revival Sermons by Louis Albert Banks A Lion and a Bear as Stepping Stones to a Giant The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. First Samuel 17.37 there were giants in those days, and the chiefest of them all defied the armies of Israel. How hard it is to get the picture into our minds! In that old day, before there were cannon or guns of any sort, men met each other face to face with sword and spear, with stone and club— or with the clutch and struggle of arms and strangling fingers fought out their battles. The armies lay over against each other for forty days, and every day there was a most dramatic and exciting occurrence in which Goliath, the giant, was the chief actor, and the interested armies on both sides were the audience. Goliath was a descendant of that race of giants, the sons of Anak, who kept their ground in Joshua's time. Physically speaking, he was certainly a man worth seeing. He was over eleven feet high, and his armor, made of brass plates laid over one another like the scales of a fish, was of vast weight. His weapons of war were naturally in proportion to his size. His spear was like a weaver's beam. Not considering himself in need of any shield, he let his squire carry that in front of him as a matter of state. Every day this man strode out, towering aloft in his mighty strength, and shouting to the armies of Israel— Am not I a Philistine, and ye servants to Saul? Choose you a man for you, and let him come down to me. If he be able to fight with me, and to kill me, then will we be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then shall ye be our servants, and serve us." and after making this announcement he would close the scene by declaring, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And every day there was the same result. In the army of Israel, from the king down to the last hanger-on in camp, all were frightened out of their wits. The enormous size of the man, his dash and spirit, the utter impossibility of sending anybody to fight him, nonplussed and baffled them completely. 
and day after day this went on until we can well believe that after forty days of it the army of saul was in a desperate state of mind then it was that david came over from the hills of bethlehem a shepherd lad with a bag of parched corn and ten cheeses and a little money in his pocket to take his brother's garments out of pawn if they had been in hard luck anybody meeting that young man with his ruddy cheeks and sunburned face and homely little country outfit would not have supposed there was much hope for the army of israel there but appearances are often deceitful David came up to the army just as the play of Goliath was coming on the stage for the fortieth time, and this young poet-shepherd of Bethlehem, having all a poet's dreams and ideals about the army of the Lord and the power that ought to belong to those who represent God, was shocked when he heard the blasphemy of the giant as he defied the armies of the living God. But David was still more shocked to see the cowardice of the people of Israel. To his astonishment, not only was no one willing to go out and fight Goliath, but their hearts melted like water at the sight of him, and they ran trembling and cowering on his appearance. David asked what was the matter, and someone answered, Have ye seen this man that has come up? surely to defy israel is he come up and it shall be that the man who killeth him the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in israel and david replied in astonishment who is this uncircumcised philistine that he should defy the armies of the living god just then Eliab, David's elder brother, with all the young soldier's contempt for the youngster that is left at home to herd sheep while he himself goes to battle, came up, and, hearing David's proud, brave speech, vented his fear of Goliath in angry words to David. Turning with flushed face and excited tones, he said, "'Why camest thou down hither?' and with whom hast thou left those few a sheep in the wilderness i know thy pride and the naughtiness of thine heart for thou art come down that thou mightest see the battle if david had wanted to be sharp with him he might easily have taken the wind out of his sails by remarking on the fact that there did not seem to be any particular chance for a battle just then unless Saul's soldiers came to have more pluck and courage. But David mildly replied, What have I now done? Is there not a cause? And he turned away to talk to somebody else about Goliath. The man who has a big thought in his mind and a great purpose in his heart can afford to let the curs bark without stopping to kick them. But it is an evidence of the excitable condition that was in the army that some of the soldiers, overhearing the shepherd boy's talk, thought it important enough to go and tell the king about it. And so, ere long, David was ushered into the presence of Saul. 
By the time David came before the king, he had made up his mind what he would do. What a picture it would make for a great artist, the young David in his shepherd toggery standing before King Saul, and saying with all the assurance imaginable, as though he were going out to attack a prairie chicken or a rabbit, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Thy servant will go and fight with this Philistine. Now Saul, with all his faults, was a big man, and he liked pluck. But he took no stock in David's being able to back up his proposition, and so with a look, I imagine, of mingled admiration and pity, in which combination pity was in the majority, he said to David, Thou art not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for thou art but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. Then David squares himself about to tell his story. Thy servant, he says, kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear, and took a lamb out of the flock. "'and I went out after him, and smote him, "'and delivered it out of his mouth. "'And when he arose against me, "'I caught him by his beard, "'and smote him, and slew him. "'Thy servant slew both the lion and the bear, "'and this uncircumcised Philistine "'shall be as one of them, "'seeing he hath defied the armies of the living God.' Then David sums up his faith from these experiences, and with flashing eyes exclaims, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. And as Saul listened to the boy, the mighty soul of the young man towered aloft in the king's presence. Something of the majesty of his sublime faith in God fascinated the king and communicated itself to him. And solemnly Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with thee. That is the spirit in which David went to his victory over Goliath. I have recounted the story at length because I think that there is comparatively little study of this part of the story of David's victory over the giant, while to my mind it is the most important of all. Our theme is in this background to this picture, which was a worldwide canvas where David slew the giant of Gath with the smooth stone he had taken from the brook. Our message is that the preliminary battles of life are all important, that it is a very rare thing indeed that any man or woman ever comes to achieve great victories for God and humanity who has not been winning skirmishes for the Lord throughout the days of youth. What David did that day in the Valley of Elah was determined that other day on the hills of Bethlehem when the bear came and seized his lamb. If David had run then and left the lamb to his fate, we should probably have never heard from him again. But he would not run. The true shepherd's instinct was in him. A pious boy brought up to trust God, he believed that God would help him to do his duty and defend his flock. 
and with a daring, self-abandoning courage, he ran in and attacked the bear. So fierce was the onslaught that the bear rose up to fight this new enemy, and I have no doubt but that as he rose on his haunches he expected to make mincemeat of that shepherd lad in short metre. But ere he had time to carry into execution his brutal instinct, David's sharp knife was in his heart. Naturally this gave David courage and faith and so we are not astonished that when, a little while after, a lion came and seized a lamb, David gave chase to him. If he had fled from the bear, he would have fled from the lion, but, having killed the bear, we can now believe he is ready to fight the lion. A lion is a more terrible foe than a bear, but he went down before David's dash and courage and skill. Now in all this David was reverent. He sincerely felt that it was not his own strength or his own skill that gave him the victory in these cases, but that it was God who gave him deliverance. This is important. For you can easily see that though this shepherd lad born among the hills, cunning in the habits of wild beasts, had managed to slay a bear and a lion, it would have given him no particular confidence in this fight against the giant of Gath if he had been trusting entirely in himself. But that is not the way David puts it. He bases his confidence entirely on other grounds. He says, The Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear, he will deliver me out of the hand of this Philistine. So you see, it is from the back of the bear and the lion, step by step, that David mounts to that plane of courage and faith which makes him willing to go out and face the mighty giant. Now in all this I wish you clearly to see that we have nothing unusual so far as the law of God's dealing with David is concerned. We have revealed, rather, in this picturesque story of David, a law of God that is as wide as humanity. The illustrations are abundant. Daniel got the strength to go down in the lion's den and take the biggest of them all for his pillow, away back yonder in those boyish days when he refused the king's wines and meat. If he had lost that first battle, he never would have won the others that glorified his career. Joseph gained the strength and wisdom and steady nerve to rule over Egypt and become the mightiest statesman of his time, when, in Potiphar's palace, he retained his manhood at the loss of his liberty and the threat of his life. Moses laid the foundations for the mighty strength which stood him in such good stead throughout the forty years of wandering in the wilderness, in that first choice in the schools of Egypt, when he chose rather to endure persecution than to be the wealthy and luxurious tool of tyrants. But we do not need to go back into the past to seek for illustrations. All the modern world is full of them. 
Take the case of Dwight L. Moody. A gentleman in Chicago tells how, in those days, before the world knew of the great possibilities that were in him, he found Moody in a Chicago garret. It was the miserable home of a poor colored woman in whose anxious heart solicitude concerning the future of her little child mingled with her sensations of pain and with her solemn thoughts as she was going down into the valley and shadow of death. Moody sat in a chair by her deathbed. He had the little black child on one knee, and one arm was about it. The hand of that arm grasped a candle, the feeble rays of which fell on the pages of a well-worn Bible. The other hand held the holy book, from whose pages, with tearful eyes and tender tones, he read aloud to the negro mother the words of everlasting life. The woman's face kindled with hope while the wandering child gazed into the face of the man whose voice in after years was to speak to tens of thousands of people the glorious gospel of Christ. It was in such scenes that Moody got his courage and his power. Somebody asked him once in what theological seminary he was educated. Moody said that it was among the poor children— he remarked that a great many men want to do great things at first, and that was the mistake he made when he started out. He said he wanted to preach to intelligent people, but he soon found that the people didn't like to hear him. So, said Moody, I began with the children. They liked to hear me, and I got along very well. I grew right up along with them, but it was years before I could talk profitably to grown-up people. I talked to the children, and it was the preparation I needed. That was my theological seminary. Now, I hope in all this we are not failing to get the message I want to preach to you this morning, that we must not despise the day of small things. We must not refuse the opportunity to do good or to help introduce Jesus Christ because it seems an insignificant or commonplace chance. In the first place, we are very poor judges of what is small and what is great in God's sight. David, the shepherd lad, was a very insignificant individual in the mind of Eliab, his elder brother. But before nightfall, every man in the army knew that he was the most important man in the nation. The story is told of a young bugler in the French army who lay on his narrow bed in the camp hospital mortally wounded. The commander, passing from bed to bed to speak a kind word to each occupant, paused by the little bugler and laid a cool hand on his fevered brow. "'Oh, General,' said the little fellow, "'if only I were a man, I might have helped to win the battle yesterday.' "'Win the battle,' replied the General. "'Why, without your aid, we should never have won the day.' 
though your duty seemed so simple and so insignificant, I could not have done without you. Let us do what we can. If it is only to blow our bugle of testimony for Jesus, in weak and simple words, let us do it with love for Christ, and in faith that the God who nerved the arm and directed the weapon of David will not forget us but will use our efforts for the glory of God and the salvation of men. Let us not fail to learn our proper relation to the great opportunities of life. It is for us to be ready to do the duty God points out to us, whether it be great or small, and then we may be sure that He will give us opportunities for service. Mr. Beecher once used this illustration to show how God and man must work together to perform the work that needs to be done in the salvation of men. A ship is stuck on a mud bank, and the tide is going out. It careens over, and there it lies, like many discouraged Christians. They do not need to anchor. The anchor is out, though— by and by, the tide begins to come in, little by little. The captain calls up the crew and orders them to hoist in the anchor. It is hoisted in and stowed away. Trim the sails, is the next command, and that is obeyed. The tide is still coming in, coming in, coming in. And by and by, the vessel floats off, and the crew look up with admiration and say, what a captain we have! It was the hauling in of the anchor and the trimming of the sails that saved us. The captain gave his orders, they were obeyed, and then she floated. But no, it was not the captain's doings. The Lord God, who swings the stars through the heavens and exerts his power upon the ocean, did it. The captain was ready, that was his part. He foresaw the coming of the tide, and adapted the circumstances of his vessel to meet it. Brothers and sisters, are you ready for whatever God wants you to do? Our message this morning is both to Christians and to those who are not. Those of us who are Christians should have emphasized on our hearts this morning that it is in the doing of daily duties, in self-denial under commonplace circumstances, in the patience and love developed, it may be in pain and sorrow, that there is brought out in us a courage and a faith and a beauty of character that in the great emergency, in the great opportunity of life, will not fail us, but will stand us instead for victory. And to you who are not Christians, have I no message? Is not life passing and all its opportunities and privileges hastening away? Every moment's delay in yielding yourself up to do the will of God is leaving you unfitted for the great work which God is so willing for you to do, and the great victories He so desires you to win. 
come to him today, and let not another hour be lost in fitting yourself for the noblest manhood and the loftiest womanhood which God has in his thought for you. End of section 13